we've been um, test driving four homiletic students so far in the last few days. And they have done very well, to which you might add, his love endures forever. These guys are handling God's word well. And it's a delight to see that. You will, no doubt, next semester when we enlist some student preachers to come up here in chapel and share God's word. So that will be good. Now, Stephen hasn't preached yet. We'll be particularly judicious with his evaluation forms. Stephen uh, reminds us of a feature film, his words earlier, remind us of a feature film from now long ago. Many of you might remember that scene where Harry and Lloyd are coming home after a miserable day. They're both losers. And comparing notes as far as how their day had gone, and uh, Harry indicated that his girlfriend had dumped him, broken up with him. Why would she do a thing like that? Well, I don't know. She went on about me not listening to her or something. I don't know. I wasn't really paying attention. <laughs> Thank you, Stephen. Um, one of our most difficult challenges, I, I'm convinced of this, is in learning to listen. And I say that deliberately, learning to listen, because I'm not sure that it's, it's ever really completely mastered. Um, we have problems with ourselves. We would far rather speak. We have a, a propensity to do it that way. We, we have a culture that feeds that, uh, reinforcing the notion that, you know, really what you have to say is more important than what someone else might have to say. Uh, the Bible, though, takes issue with that. We hear the watch cry of the, of the uh, devoted Jew has always been the Shema of Deuteronomy 6.4, and you know it. Hear, O Israel. It's almost like if you don't go any further, if you don't get anything else, at least engage the hearing. That's so important. It's interesting that on the Mount of Transfiguration, if you recall the scene where Jesus and Peter and James and John ascend the mountain and there is an otherworldly experience waiting for them. Otherworldly in that the garments of Jesus' clothing and, and Mark's gospel puts it, uh, were whiter than any launderer on earth could make them. That's a deliberate allusion to the fact that we're really not on earth right now. This is an otherworldly thing because, look, here comes Moses, here comes Elijah. The heavens split, and, and a voice speaks from on high. And the voice, of course, is the voice of God the Father. And he says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Isn't that interesting? Uh, more than tell about him, which we know is vital, more about being impressed with his amazing works and his miracles and so forth. Fundamentally, listen to him. It's a process. Remember uh, 
oh, a number of weeks ago now, we started this conversation with a discussion about Apollos and how it was that this eloquent, educated man from Alexandria was mighty in the Scriptures. He's bright and he's, he's accomplished, and, and yet he didn't have all the facts. He was missing something rather significant, knowing only the baptism of John. He wasn't yet aware of the little things like the cross and the resurrection and the ascension and Pentecost and some of these things that, that rounded out the, uh, the, the truth of God's salvation. And so when Aquila and Priscilla took him aside, I've always been impressed with the fact that even though these are mere tent makers, one of them is a woman, and they take this mighty man aside and explain to him the way of truth more accurately, and he listened to them, to his credit. I can remember being in Bible college, oh, not that long ago, and I can remember as I look back on that, I'm not convinced I listened as well as I should have. I can remember being convinced from time to time that I really did know more than the teacher who maybe I just didn't quite click with. And I can remember having conversations with equally ignorant classmates where we pooled our ignorance. And I look back on that now and I think, huh. And I've said this, I really did know more then than I know today. At least, I would think so. I should have been more attentive to the kindergarten teacher. Uh, if you went to kindergarten, I hope your teacher said something like this, because I remember our kindergarten teacher who did this for years and years would say, children, you listen and you learn. You listen and you learn. We, um, God's people should be good listeners. And we think, okay, this is great. This is, let's, let's do a moralistic lesson now that just talks about being good listeners. It's a pedagogical uh, enterprise, and, and, and we'll just be better students because of it. This is, uh, but I want to emphasize that it goes much further than that. The Bible doesn't say, be good listeners just because God's thinking, it, it will go better for you and for others if you are good listeners. Oh, it will, but that's not the point. It reminds me of the notion behind uh, a man and a woman becoming one in marriage. And I, and I think that for years, perhaps the church has missed the point by saying, well, yeah, marriage is the foundation of home life and social order and must so remain till the end of time. That's true, but it doesn't go to the core of the matter. Marriage is a good idea. It is the foundation of home life and social order. It must so remain to the end of time, but that's not why. The reason marriage is as significant as it is is because it's a reflection of the character of God. You see, these things need to go to, to the core is in God himself. And I'm going to suggest that the fundamental reason God's people should learn to be good listeners is because God is such a good listener. It's his character. This is, God listens. This is the most important theological foundation, and, and this is becoming more and more real to me and, and, and true and emphatic in my thinking the further I go. If God is a good listener, 
and he lives in me, does it not follow that I should grow in that dimension as well? And I come back to this frequently, and I challenge Christians continually. Do you really believe, do we really believe, do we really believe that the very Spirit of Christ lives in us? Do we believe that? We, we believe it, I know, academically. I know we, we believe it theologically. But are we growing in our, in our grasp of that, in our comprehension of that, and in seeing that truth lived out in our lives? If God lives in us, that changes everything. But today, we're talking about listening. God listens. We, we assume this constantly. We just prayed. We spent a lot of time praying. Every time we pray, we bow our heads, we uh, thank God for our food, or we lay our heads on our pillows at night. Whenever, whenever we pray, we just automatically assume it's a given to us that God is listening. Isn't that great? I think that's a wonderful assumption. Sometimes I think it's a presumption. Sometimes I think we take that truth for granted, perhaps. Speaking of the listening uh, quality of God, I was letting my mind kind of roam through Scripture a little bit. And by the way, homiletic students, this is not an expository message. So if you had your hopes up, uh, forget it. It's not. I'm not sure how Ryan would characterize it, um, but maybe we can talk about that in class someday. God is listening. Go back. Oh, you don't have to go back. I'll just tell you what happens. But you remember the distress of the Israelites in the early chapters of Exodus? They find themselves in Egypt under the... Uh, control of a pharaoh. He didn't know Joseph, doesn't know the Lord, and he begins to make their, their lives miserable. And so the children of Israel cry out to God in the 23rd verse of the second chapter. Um, they sighed because of their bondage, and they cried out. And their cry for uh, help because of their bondage rose up to God, and God heard their groaning. That is such good news. God heard their groaning and he remembered his promise with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God then took action. The prayer of Solomon, many years later, the prayer of Solomon at the dedication of the temple is, is telling. It's in 1 Kings 8, all the way, the, basically the entire chapter of 1 Kings 8, having to do with Solomon addressing the people and then praying a prayer of dedication and he stood before the altar of God in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. This is a paleo-charismatic movement. And he besought God in behalf of the people. And he said, Lord, no matter what happens, wherever your people go, whatever they might do wrong, however you might deal with them, when that time comes that they cry out to you, would you hear them? Would you hear them? Would you hear them? And of course, we know that the approval of God is registered in the temple filling with the glory of the presence of God himself. The Lord said to him after Solomon's long prayer and massive sacrificial dedication and so forth of many animals and so and all that went on, the Lord said to him in the ninth chapter, I have heard. 
That is such, that is such remarkable news. And I, and I think, okay, God isn't like us. And often, I'm so glad. God doesn't play games. God doesn't manipulate. God, God doesn't uh, trick us. And God isn't like we can be sometimes. And, and little kids do this, big kids do this too. If they want to send a message that um, their way is to be preferred and you speak to them, oftentimes folks just pretend not to hear. Little kids do that. They ought to be whooped when they do that. They pretend not to hear and just keep walking. Uh, that was not tolerated in my home growing up. But then I find myself sometimes maybe doing that a little bit too. God's not like that. God doesn't pretend. He doesn't need to. His ears are always open to the cries of his people. God is a, is a good listener, and his people should be as well. God hears. Oh, but there's a caveat. We probably ought to go a little deeper with this. God hears, that is, until his people prefer other gods. Until his people prefer other gods. I'd suggest that implicit in Scripture, more explicit in certain places than others, I'm thinking of Romans 1. We just heard a sermon from Daniel Mazon on that this morning. We become like the object of our worship. Ponder that for just a second. What do we hold dear? What do we uh, venerate? What do we, you might say, idolize? What do we worship? Whom do we worship? Because we tend to become like that object. You've probably heard it said that it's the natural um, tendency of all people to create God in their own image. Clearly a, a reversal of what the scripture says in Genesis 1. But we tend to create God in our own image. That's like a default mode. Why is that? Because we want a God with whom we are comfortable. You'll hear people say, professing Christian people will say, well, my God is a God of, of love. Or my God would, would never punish. Or, or, or my God, would, oh, pardon me, but your God is your God. I'm concerned more with the God of the Bible. Now, when we do create God in our own image, we have a tendency then uh, to become like that God. And honestly, biblical morality is one of the first things to go. It's reflected in behavior, reflected in attitude, reflected in many things. Uh, we become, we tend to become like the object of our worship. That's why God said when he brought his children out of the land of Egypt and got them situated and, and ready to move forward, he's, he said, be holy. Because I'm holy. Be like me. Worship me. Listen to me. And you become like me. How'd that work for the Israelites? How did they do? Exodus 32 gives us a clue when the golden calf just happened to spring out of that fire that day. And the people bowed down to worship an inanimate object. They, they built an idol, an idol of their own crafting, an idol 
uh, before which they felt comfortable bowing down and worshiping. Isn't that interesting? It just, it seemed easier. And idolatry, I mean, this, we're talking now about pagan literal idolatry with real physical idols became the order of the day for God's people. You can read about that beginning. It's in, it's in, it's in Genesis. It's in Exodus. Um, it was warned about in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy. We see it, though, surfacing as early as the book of Judges when Baal worship and worship of Baal's female consort began to be the order of the day. And we see it happening, and we see God's people, the Israelites, not so slowly, but absolutely surely moving in that direction and adopting these, the idols of the people among whom they were living. Why would they do a thing like it? Because those idols were easier for them. That Those idols represented fleshly interests and self-gratification, and they didn't then... They didn't then have to deal with the God who had propositionally spoken to them in tablets of stone, and they moved further into idolatry and got worse and worse and worse as time went by until God, well, God dealt with them in a rather radical fashion. And I, and I want to, I want to uh, explore a couple of passages of Scripture in that regard because, remember now, we've become like the object of our worship. It's almost amusing, Isaiah 44 is. Ludicrous, we would probably say, and what it offers us. By way of the prophet Isaiah's description of idolatry. Now, I think there's no question but that Isaiah's depiction of idolatry here is, is colored a bit or, or by his own experience in vision form in, uh, in the temple of God in the year of Uzziah's death and Isaiah 6, you know, he goes, he's transported to the temple and he sees this amazing, amazing depiction of God. Doesn't really describe God, just describes the, the circumstances of God. Remember that? Isaiah 6, where the, the smoke and the foundations are shaking and the train of his robe fills the temple and the two angels, with each with six wings, uh, perpetually hovering there before the Lord, crying out what? Love, love, love. Easy going, easy going, easy going? No. Holy, holy, holy. And on a side note, isn't it something that we see that same scenario again in the fourth chapter of Revelation? Those same angels doing that same thing. Evidently, the character of God is the same. In any event, so, so Isaiah, having witnessed that and that having changed his life, because now he sees himself as undone, and, and he's going to have to be uh, taking an unpopular message from that God to these people who are idolaters. But watch how this works. In Isaiah 44, um, the prophet is, in a sense, um, almost like he's poking fun. Beginning in verse 9, those who fashion a graven image, all of them are futile. Their precious things are of no profit. Their own witnesses fail to see or to know so that they will be put to shame. This, by the way, is Isaiah 44, if you're interested. Um, here it is, verse 12. The man shapes iron into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working it with his strong arm. He also gets hungry <laughs> and his strength fails. He drinks no water and becomes weary. Another man shapes wood. One guy's going to make... An iron idol, another's going to make a wooden one. He, 
He extends the measuring line. You see, the men are creating this. People are creating now. Uh, he, he extends the measuring line, outlines it with red chalk. He works it with planes, outlines it with a compass, makes it like the, like the form of a man, like the beauty of a man, so that it may sit in his house. It needs to look good on the mantle. Honey, what kind of wood are we going to use when we do the trim? Oh, because we want to make our icon match that. It needs to look good. And it looks like a person. I'm comfortable with this person. I should be. I'm creating it. In sculpting, they tell me, if you want to make a, a little man, you just cut away all the pieces that don't look like a little man, and then you end up with one. It seems as if there's something like that going on here. He, puts, he cuts cedars for himself, a cypress or an oak. He raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir. The rain makes it grow. Then it becomes firewood. He takes one of them, warms himself, takes a piece of wood, warms himself. He, he, takes, he makes a fire to bake bread. And the wood serves his purpose to, to uh, deal with his hunger. He also makes a god and worships. He makes fire, he plants trees, he carves wood. He makes a god. People, see here, are in the, in the driver's seat. He worships it, makes a graven image. Falls down before it. I like verse 16. Half of it he burns in the fire. And the other half he worships. Wow. Isn't that something? And he falls down before it and worships it. And he prays to it, it says. He prays to it and says, deliver me. <laughs> for you are my God. Chair. Deliver me. Anything I've fashioned, anything I've created, Well, there's more to the story. Because the text goes on to say, um, this piece of wood, it, it can't hear. It can't see. It can't speak. It can't move unless, unless you make it move. It can't do those things. The idol has no faculty. And here's the deal. The idol can't hear. So here we have Isaiah, and I'm back in Isaiah 6, if you're, if you're at all interested, when Isaiah now is ready to receive this message from God. Whom shall I send? The Lord said, who will go for us? And Isaiah said, here am I. I'm, I'm right with you. I'm, I'm forgiven. I'm, I'm ready to go to work. Send me. Okay, go and tell these people. This people keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Go ahead and talk, but they ain't going to hear anything. Why? Because God has given them what they wanted. You want that as your God? Become then like that idol. You want to worship that idol? Become like that idol? Okay, your hearing now is impaired. You won't hear spiritual things. God has distanced himself from the spiritual sensitivities of these people. And you think, well, that's terrible. And we're with Isaiah. We're saying, well, how long has that got to go on? It is a, a curse of judgment, you might say. How long does this go on? And I, the answer God gives Isaiah is, until I'm done judging. Now, I will always leave a remnant... But with regard to this people, 
I'm giving them what they want. Become like the object of your worship, and you will have it. And now you can't hear any better than that chunk of wood can hear. Isn't it interesting that that Isaiah 6 passage, which perplexes us, if we, if we take it outside the context of, of the curse and so forth, it, we, it almost sounds like, well, that means God doesn't want anyone to get saved. Well, it, what, actually what it means is God is giving people what they want. They haven't been listening. They haven't been seeing. They haven't been seeking. And so he's saying, okay, that's how you want. I will give you what you want. Go ahead, be like your idols. And he pulls away. But that's not where it ends because this very passage is quoted by Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, indicating that 700 plus years change from Isaiah to Jesus, what, is, what has changed? Nothing has changed. The people still have that, that veil. The people still aren't getting... And so, okay, that was Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then he goes to the cross. And then we have a, a resurrection and an ascension and, and a Pentecost and Holy Spirit shows up in, in spades. I mean, okay, that changes. Does it? The last quote of this Isaiah 6 passage is in Acts 28. Long after all that occurred, and, and the Jewish people in Rome are shutting Paul down, and he said, and Paul says, rightly did Isaiah then prophesy of you people. And he quotes them, Isaiah 6 once again. We await, we await that change, other than for the remnant. But boy, this is why Jesus would say, and he says repeatedly through his Gospels, and he says it to each of the churches in the letter to the Revelation. What is his quote? He who has ears to hear. <laughs> He's calling on those who have the spiritual sensitivity to hear. He's calling on the remnant. He's calling on those, if you're listening, if you're getting this, keep listening. Keep coming. Keep asking. Keep seeking. Keep knocking. Keep hearing. Brothers and sisters, we need to have ears to hear, and we need to keep hearing. That is by the grace of God. And so, we should be good listeners because God's a good listener. Uh, secondly, because listening is attractive for the gospel. Listening, our listening is attractive for the gospel. How many of you have read the book is, is older now? I read it years ago. I, I believe it's still in print. It's Joseph Bailey's book, The Gospel Blimp. Anybody read that book? You've not read The Gospel Blimp. Bailey, B-A-Y-L-Y. -Y. The book is about an evangelistic enterprise on the part of a suburban evangelical church, and they want everybody in their town to hear the gospel. I'm going to, it's a little spoiler alert here, but I'll just tell you, it's a fascinating, very thin book. You can read it during D-Lab. <laughs> and, and so what they do is they put their money together and, and they pool their creativity and they enlist a blimp, a dirigible. And, and it has, just like over football games, you know, it has the, the marker, marker on the side, the electronic uh, illuminated marker on the side. And the idea here is that they're going to load the basket of the dirigible with gospel tracts. 
and they're going to, uh, to uh, send the dirigible aloft over their town, and it's going to be flashing the text of John 3.16 across itself so that it's going to circle the town for God so loved the world and gave his only begotten son. And everybody's going to hear, see that, get to see that. And in addition, they're going to dump tracts on the town. So everybody in the town is, is going to hear the gospel. Now, I'm not, the book does not question bring the motives of these folks into question, but there's an interesting subplot going on while this whole plan is being uh, developed and, and executed. There's one of the guys in the group is thinking, I just have my misgivings about that. And he starts to withdraw from the gospel blimp enterprise. And instead of staying with that, he, he's kind of drawn to his neighbor. And he decides he just wants to get to know his neighbor. He's burdened for his neighbor. And so as the book ends, the, the, the gospel blimp has been, has been uh, sent aloft, and, and this guy and his neighbor are out in a boat fishing. And he's getting to know his neighbor by listening to him. There's something about listening that is attractive. I, um, I remember once, years ago, I led this young man to the Lord, and it was quite a deal. His, his testimony, he was college age, and he had come out of the, you know, um, party scene and everything, and he said once, he said we were, every night was like a party, Fridays and Saturdays in particular, and he says, I remember being in a room full of people, and for some reason, I, I just felt like I didn't want to be in the room anymore. It was, it was raucous, and things were getting crazy and so forth, and he, it was in his particular house. He was running with some other guys, and he, went, he said, I went upstairs to my, to my bedroom. It was over the living room where everybody was gathered down below. And he says, I lay there on the bed trying to sleep. All I could hear was this cacophony of voices and so forth below me. And he, and he said, it, came, it struck me suddenly that everybody was talking and nobody was listening. And that worked to nudge him toward what he understood of the gospel and of God taking a personal interest in him. It's an attraction. I, um, nobody's listening. He wanted someone who would. There's this, uh, ever read the book Wind in the Willows? Fun book, right? Uh, the badger in the book Wind in the Willows sat in his armchair at the head of the table, nodded gravely at intervals, as the animals around the table told their story. He did not seem surprised or shocked at anything, and he never said, he never said, I told you so, or just what I always said. He never remarked that they ought to have done so-and-so or ought not to have done something else. He just listened. And the paragraph ends with, the mole began to feel very friendly toward him. Ever notice? People who listen draw you. I was in a, in a fishing trip once with a bunch of guys. I didn't know some of them, and they matched us up and said, okay, you guys go in this boat, you guys go in this boat. I ended up in a, in, a, in a boat with a guy I'd never really known, and so we're out there talking, and we're out for a few hours, and by the time we got back into shore, I just found myself really liking this guy. Uh, this, we, we're clicking here. I said, we, we could hang out. We could be friends, and... and uh, then it dawned on me why, why I felt that way, because we'd spent a lot of the time, he's asking me questions. Asking me questions about my life and about my kids and about my work and, and, and all that. He's asking me 
question after question, and then it dawned, ah, yes, he actually professionally is a counselor. <laughs> but you see how good it is to listen. And I, I was, there was just a natural draw to the approach that he had, and it was, turned out to be a very good thing. Um, I'm running out of time. You know, the good thing is about running out of time when you're speaking in chapel, and you know you're going to be speaking in chapel again. You just put a mark on your paper where you left off, and uh, we'll pick it up there next time. So let me pray. Lord, sometimes we take for granted your amazing listening ear. How so many people can pour out their hearts to you at all times, and you hear. And Father, we're glad that you are not only a God afar off yet who hears, but you're a God who gets engaged. And you invade and you interpose and you work change and you provide comfort and you give guidance and you encourage us and strengthen us and help us along the way. Thank you for being the God you are. Help us, Father, first of all, to hear you and then to hear one another as we represent you. And give us, Father, insight and perception and patience and eventually opportunity to say words, words of life. We pray in your Son's name and thank you. Amen.